most of the time I'm adrenaline, adrenaline, go, 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 go. But especially when things are not going the direction, I'm always like, less is more, just watch to see what happens. And I always like to say to myself, they'll either get worse or they'll get better or they'll stay the same. <laughs> There's three possibilities, but I have to see what happens. After the situation is fast, let's say I'm off of work and I think about that situation. I feel like I just keep playing a tape of it over and over again in my mind and thinking, okay, wait, but what if this happened? Like all the little other choices that I didn't make, or I chose A, but what if I chose B? And I run through that. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Peggy Sang. Dr. Sang is an emergency medicine doctor based in Los Angeles, California, and as she describes it, in her free time, she enjoys sharing her life in medicine and motherhood on her social media. You can find her on Instagram under her married name, Peggy G, at pegs days that's P-E-G-S-F-O-R-D-A-Y-S. Now, this is a very cool conversation, and we spend most of our time here in the preparation and recovery parts of our prepare, perform, recover, and evolve cycle. We talk a lot about the ideas of playing to our natural strengths and building systems around us to support ourselves, and also about how the moment after something happens, the moment of winding down and coming back to center, is really part of the crisis itself, not something separate. Before we jump in, a quick reminder to check out the Emergency Mind book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can find it on Amazon, you can ask for it in your local bookstore, or you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. Now, if you already have a copy, please consider leaving us a review. It's a huge help for us to get our message out there to more folks. Okay, all that said, let's jump right into this episode. I hope you enjoy. Peggy, thank you so much for coming on the Emergency Mind podcast. I'm honored to sit down with you like this. We've been passing in the ER back and forth quite a bit and having a bunch of shifts together, but I'm psyched to sit down with you and and really dig into some of this deeper stuff. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. I'm excited to do this. This is definitely not something that I get to do at all ever often. So I'm excited for something new to Right on, right on. Let's just dive right into exploring sort of our cycle of work here, the prepare, perform, recover, evolve ideas. And let's start at the beginning with prepare. So when you're getting set up, Peggy, to do a shift in the ER or at one of the invent medicine things that you do, or really at anything else, how do you do that? What's your preparation like? And specifically, I guess I'd ask like, what's your mental preparation like? What do you do to to get yourself in the right headspace to perform? It's funny that you specify specifically mental because all of my preparations are very like physical. I'm like sleep (laughs) or like make sure I eat (laughs) or pack a lunch. Like those are very concrete things that I do. (laughs) That's great. Let's go there then. Tell me what's your ritual? What's your setup to prepare for an event or a shift? Well, I do a lot of swing shifts and night shifts, swing shifts being in the late afternoon to late evening and a lot of overnight shifts just because I think I know myself personally, I'm really pretty good at taking naps. I'm pretty terrible at going to bed early and I'm not a morning person. It's just kind of worked out that way that I'll usually have my mornings at home with my family. And then at some point I will take a nap, whether it's like an early morning nap for a swing shift, or it's a big long afternoon nap when my daughter takes her nap. That's usually what I really focus on doing is getting a good amount of rest before as best I can before a shift. It's terrible when I have a morning shift. I cannot go to bed early on time. And it's just, I feel worse when I have an early morning shift, but that's what I do. And then I know usually I'll be pretty busy when I do get to work. Time to eat is not always guaranteed. So I always try to just eat as much as I possibly can. I used to 
actually be tell myself like eat till I'm full and then eat beyond that. <laughs> That's kind of like a good place to start before I go to work, just in case yeah. I never know. Yeah. It's good that you know that and you're able to sort of play to your strengths and, and design as much as possible the work environment around what sort of like your natural state of being is like that. Were you mm-hmm. always like that? Was that something that you figured out over the course of like looking back at your shifts on residency when you really have no control over your schedule or how did you come to that? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that. I totally agree. Like residency had no control. We had to do all types of shifts. And I really didn't know this about myself until after residency when I could dictate my own schedule and choose the type of shifts that worked better for myself. To be fair, also the thing that's different is when I was a resident, I was just myself, not a mom. And now like after residency, I had a child and sleep has just been very different since that has happened. So yeah, during residency, I thought I hated night shifts. It was also very isolating when you were night shift and you're only doing night shifts. But now as a attending, when I don't have to work as often as I did before, and when I actually have other things at home going on that I don't want to miss during the daytime, I feel like my priorities are different and my sleep is different that I've kind of settled into, oh, this works for me now at this point in my life. But I've always been good about napping. That's That has never changed. It was just more like, yeah, the other stuff I didn't want to miss being around at home in the daytime. And yeah, I didn't have a choice back in rent. So now I, now I kind of play to my own strengths. I think sleep and getting sleep, and especially in the setting of shift work and changing work is such a complicated problem. And one that we've explored through like a number of episodes in the podcast and are going to continue to explore because I don't think there's a perfect answer to it. What's your setup for that? What's your sleep like? How do you go to sleep? Is that the right way to ask that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, well, my sleep pre-shift is very different than my sleep post-shift. My sleep pre-shift, so let's say I'm talking about like a overnight shift. So my sleep pre-shift, it'll be in the afternoon. Usually I'm pretty tired by the time it's time to take a nap anyway. I've kind of conditioned myself at this point. I'm, I'm pretty nap dependent, kind of almost like my toddler. So it's easy for me to just go to nap time. When I really need to be serious about taking a long nap, it's you know blackout curtains. I've recently started doing the earbuds. I didn't used to need to do that. But now that like things are going on at home... I've recently had to do that, but really just having a dark is good enough for me. The after shift sleep is very different for me because no matter what time of day it is, it could be, you know, getting home at 11 PM or 1 AM, 2 AM, or getting home at like 7 AM after a night shift, I need to have several hours to unwind. I can't, I just, I think I just can't turn my brain off or I don't know. I think it must be the adrenaline of a shift too. I just have to do something or I puts around or I'll, you know, if suddenly like, you know, want to read a book or you know, have something to eat. I just, I find myself as much as I'm saying, oh, I got to go to bed because I have to an early wake up the next morning. I cannot get myself to just settle down into sleep for a while. So I think like reading has been the most helpful because it's like a physical book rather than a screen. I realize screens are not conducive to my sleep, but yeah, I, I realize like after shifts, I, that that's the thing that's kind of taken me that also I realize in terms of scheduling myself. Like I can't put myself on too close of shifts together because I know I won't be able to just go home and drop into bed and be up in like seven hours ready to work because I need a lot of time to unwind. That's a really interesting thread. Mm -hmm. So when you come home from a shift, especially if you're working in the late, are you coming home directly into interacting with your family and people? Or are you coming home and you've created, you've carved out a bubble where you're like, okay, nobody talked to me for a couple of hours. Mm. Like what's that look like? It just depends on what time of day I come home. If everyone's awakened at home, I jump right in. I mean, physically and like, I actually, we're like, I'm stripping down out of my scrubs in the garage before I come home and get into the shower first thing before I give anyone a hug or something like that. My wave to them, you know, 
um, on the way in, in through the house, but I'm getting into the shower and it's almost like a mental, like just like getting physically the work off of me, the clothes, the shower, but also just kind of like, that's my time that I'm kind of shifting. And then as soon as the shower's done, I'm like back into the thick of family life, whether it's the middle of dinner time, whether I just jump in the middle of bedtime, whatever it could be, or, oh, it could be literally like, I'll come home, take a shower and then, oh, attempt to take my kid to preschool, finish breakfast for their ticket to preschool. But if I come home at like 2 a.m. when no one else is awake, it's still the same thing. I still physically, you know, shed my work layers, mm-hmm. but then it's just me in the world. So that I'm, <laughs> I'm just reading, cleaning, doing whatever I like to do as much as I want to just get into bed and go to sleep to get maximized hours because I just, I can't do it. It's something I'm always working on improving and it's mm. still something I'm working on improving. Yeah. I mean, first off, I'm glad to know that you wave to your family when you walk by that you don't stonewall, <laughs> ignore them. I think that's, that's, that's probably good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> but, but you're describing like a real thing for a lot of us, which is that, you know, you come home and you have the Mission Critical Team Institute folks describe it as uh, residue. You have residue on you. And whether that's, you know, the emotional residue of having just operated a really complicated code and mm-hmm. a patient of yours dying or mm-hmm. seeing something that's really horrible and really, really invoking of suffering, or it's sometimes the physical residue of coming home covered in blood or potentially mm-hmm. in COVID and having to deal with that before you you are able to sort of interact with people again. The The ritual of like, a physical shower and a mental shower, I think is like a yeah. really, really interesting one. Yeah. That's for sure. Something that started like it was even before res- the pandemic during residency, but even more has become even more of a bigger ritual and even more of like an extensive ritual since then. What's your advice for somebody listening to this about building a ritual for coming home well and shedding that residue? I would say the important thing is just finding a safe space could be a physical space, which is helpful. You know, for me, it's like the shower, for example, or the garage before getting into home, just getting a space and then finding activities that really, I want to say kind of turn off your brain. That's kind of how it feels like to me. It feels like turning off your brain. Everyone that could be different, right? Like for me, it's a shower. It used to be something like turning on friends for me, watching a show or reading a book. But I think like knowing what comforts myself is like really key, I think in terms of then like repeating that every time. And then once you get that space and that activity and repeating it, I think it really kind of becomes like just a really like a secondhand habit, I guess, in a way. And then it makes it, I think, easier for me to just kind of go to that when I have, I don't have rough shifts every shift, right? Like we just have some are fine and some are terrible, but when you really do need that time to really decompress and think about things or unwind, it's already that system, that structure is already built so that it really does kind of second nature kind of happen. And then I feel like it's easier to get back into that non-work state afterwards. And how much are you exploring and experimenting around that? Like now looking back at it, I, you know, I hear you saying, hey, I, I put this work in to build this really strong habit that allows me to move from work Peggy to human Peggy or mm-hmm. however it is you conceive of that, right? Mm-hmm. And was that conscious as you were building and tweaking that? Are you still experimenting with it? Or Mm. are you like, no, this is exactly what I do. Everything is solid and locked in. I don't think it was a conscious thing. I think it was just a subconscious habits just kind of coming together. And then the pandemic made it a conscious kind of 
let's come up with an actual decontamination routine is what I called it, my family to feel safe when I was coming home. And so I think it was a combination of just kind of my habits from before coming together with the, I need a physical decontamination routine or space, then the two of them melding together. And then it just repeat for, you know, however long and it just kind of works for me. I'm really curious about that. And I'm, and I'm pushing on this so much because I think it's a really challenging thing to teach how to do this. And I think we have a responsibility as faculty in emergency medicine to teach people coming up how to do this kind of a thing. Not necessarily like, here's how you, you know, take a shower and wave to your family at that level, but more of the idea of like, how do you transition well? How do you transition well to home? And I struggle on how to teach this partly because I'm still figuring it out and I'm still experimenting on my own self. And partly because it's not a one size fits all thing. Right? right. Watching yeah, friends would drive me crazy. Just, <laughs> yeah. That would just it's never different do for everyone. Me. Yeah. How do we teach that? How were you taught that? How do you teach that? If I was to teach someone else or give someone else advice, I'd say just kind of notice what they're doing day to day already, kind of without them planning it. Right. So, what do you do when you come home? Or, like, just notice for yourself, like, what do you feel most happy that you're doing? And then start kind of reflecting on yourself first and then kind of highlighting those things or noticing these things that you like to do. Or, what do you normally do before you go to sleep? you know, everyone has their own thing. It's like, okay, so then maybe incorporating those parts and then saying like, okay. And then I think just kind of highlighting it, bring it to awareness is the first step. And then after that, I think it becomes easier because then that whoever is trying to build this kind of new routine or ritual can then just kind of, I guess, tweak it or try as you go. Right. Then just kind of picking and choosing and seeing what works for you. I also realized that this doesn't work if you have a life after work. Like if you have to go, you go out and meet friends. Like I don't have that life anymore that I used to during residency. This wasn't really so much a thing, right? Because we'd have, after a night shift, you go out to eat with your friends or something like that. So it was a little bit different. So it can change obviously with what stage you are in your life. And it could be very different. Like it used to be something like you get off shift and you go hang out with your co-colleagues from your shift, right? And you all decompress and talk about the shift together. And then that could be a very different thing. So at one point in my life, that's kind of what it was. Now it's not like that anymore. It's come straight home. <laughs> yeah. yeah there, there's a real strength in that while you're in uh, in deep training or a member of a team like that to be able to bounce these ideas off each other. You mm-hmm. know, we always had in, in Boston, the poor house, which was this bar on Boylston that was sort of like equidistant from every major emergency center in the city. And <laughs> the after, one center of everything. It was, it really was an epicenter. <laughs> it really was. And God, I haven't been there in a while. I hope it still exists, but you know, there's all these great memories of coming off of just crazy night shifts and the team from every hospital gathering together at the poorhouse to have like mm-hmm. a beer at, you know, mm-hmm. seven in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's somewhat adaptive in the sense that like you're processing residue and carving out space to sort of complete the ritual of letting go of what happened. And mm-hmm. it's somewhat maladaptive because you're completely relying on like <laughs> having a beer at seven in the morning to get you through this thing. And like everything, there's strengths and weaknesses to it. But I struggle with this question of how to teach that, how to teach like a healthy, strong way to to come home and, and to do that. I remember reading this, we're going to start this sentence. I don't know if this is going to end up being a tirade that, that doesn't go anywhere or not, but I'm going to go for it. <laughs> yeah. I remember studying in high school, this epic poetry from ancient Ireland. And they were describing how when folks came back from battle, they would be required to take three baths before they could see their family again. And wow. the idea was that the ritual of 
taking sequential baths, washing off one layer after another, after another was the way that society had put together this, this question of how do you come home? How do you come home from what you've seen that is so different than what the people who are at home might be seeing and might be dealing with? And I've always sort of like had that image of like taking three baths like that as like a fascinating sort of answer to this question. It's very interesting. And isn't it interesting that basically no matter whatever you're coming home from, it's always a physical washing that, Mm. you know, like that bath and like me (laughs) much later in modern day, like showering, it's just like very interesting. Yeah. yeah, I really, I didn't, I didn't expect we'd be spending so much time in the shower in this episode, but it's great. It's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely worth it. Well, actually, let, don't take very long showers, by the way. I just want to say that. <laughs> Get that out shower. there in the universe. Yeah. Good. Okay. I like to conserve right. water when I can. <laughs> Let's shift very slightly off that, which is that another way that you know we're talking here about the arc of coming home at the end of something when your tour of duty, so to speak, is done for that moment, and you're like putting down your tools. There's another moment that is a parallel moment to that with a similar structure and equally important, but you're still on. And that's in the middle of a shift when something really intense just happened and you're shifting gears back to your normal shift mode. So so let's say, for example, uh, intubation, right? You have a person, they come in, they're not breathing well. You have to anesthetize them and put a breathing tube in. It's really tense. Maybe you're struggling with it a little bit and it takes one or two passes and you put the breathing tube in and then you take a step back. And that moment has a parallel structure to what we've just talked about, mm-hmm. right? What do you do for that, right? Because you can't go take a shower and come back. It doesn't work no. like that. Like, yeah. what do you do in that moment? That is such a good question because I don't, I feel like I haven't figured it out. I feel like I'm always trying to learn it. It's always in those really exact moment that you're describing, those very high stakes, very critical, frankly, scary moments at work. And then you have to shift gears and see a very stable person or someone, another patient has like a completely different, Oh, I have a complaint or something like that. Right. Like something completely different. And I haven't figured out what is the magic way to do it. I can only tell you what I've tried to do in the past and has seemingly been okay so far, which is I'll try to take a few minutes because you realize everything else can wait. When you're, once you're in a moment like that, once you're in a really critical emergency terrifying things. You're like, okay, everything else can wait now because everyone has waited. You're stuck in this situation, this critical patient. You weren't able to respond at those other times, right? Because other patients needed you, but the nurses were able to figure it out or your colleagues were able to put in some orders for you. So then you're like, okay, once this act is actually done, they can wait still a little bit more, right? It's actually kind of like part of the same critical moment. It's just a different phase of it. So I mean, it's, it's been different for me every time. Sometimes it's just as simple as just being by myself or walking to the hallway or, you know, step like physically outside to the ambulance wrap just to be out of the ER for like a change of space, or it's just talking to a colleague or talking to the team saying, Hey, let's debrief and do a short meeting. But I don't have a magical answer other than just saying like, I need some time. And just making other people help you with that. And people are usually willing to do it in the same way that if you're in the middle of the code, no one would ever disturb you for something else. This is kind of almost just as important, right? Yeah. I I think there's a lot of magic like hidden in what you just said right there. This idea that the moment of recovery, the moment of regrouping is actually still part of the critical moment. Yeah. It's not something different. Like, Like conceiving of that as part of the same thing is really interesting idea for that. That's kind of how I've started seeing it. And 
I mean, yeah, there's no need to rush back to everything else. You're kind of in the middle of something really intense. So, and it's only just continuing. You're kind of the winding down process is still part of the process. Right? Hmm. Winding down process is still part of the process. Ooh, I love that. Cause that's so different than I think how I was taught and what was modeled especially when I was coming up and thinking back now to like medical school, because in residency, we got some of this, right. We got some of this idea of like the winding down moment as part of the moment. But I remember when I first started a bunch of this, like, that's not at all what it was, right. What it was, was, okay, you do a thing. Okay, great. Here's a list of 10 other things you need to go do right now. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I had very similar experience like that, what you're describing. I think I'm only now able to say this now that I'm not a resident. I'm a few years out. I've learned to be more selfish with my time. Because I can be, because I'm the attending. If I was a junior resident, that's very different, right? It's harder to say that when you're not on this hierarchy of like being like the leader of the team. It was harder for me to speak up for myself and say, I need some time or, you know, can I do this? So I can totally like have flashbacks of myself, like going to a bathroom just to like physically be behind a door that no one can tell me I need to do something. Just like using that in, in the bathroom to like wind down, which really shouldn't be like that, you know? But yeah, it's, I've learned to be more selfish now where I didn't used to be that way. And I think there's nothing wrong with it. If a resident t- today said to me that, or if I saw a resident go through that, I would encourage the resident to take time and stuff like that. So yeah, I agree. It's not how we were always taught to be. So how do we do better than that? Right? So how do we split that? And, and let's sort of split this approach into like, what do you and I do as the leader of a team to create mm-hmm. a space and a culture that does better for the folks coming up than what we had. And then if you're listening to this and you're not the leader of the team, you're a member of the team, or maybe you're even the most junior human there, what do you do from that position to sort of carve space for yourself? Well, I think the first thing for myself or someone like you to do is when we're transparent with it, when we're ourselves are going through that motion, through the ups and downs of that kind of crazy chaotic scene. And then the everything, the dust settling down period when you kind of, you're kind of regrouping yourself and coming back to everyone else. If I can model that and be transparent about that with the members of my team, I think that's a huge thing because then it's kind of normalizing it, right? It's saying like, Hey, we all do this. Maybe you were doing it behind a closed door where no one could see, but here I am doing it in front of you. Like I am, you know, going to step out to the side or I bring someone with me. Like if it was a junior resident that was in the same case as me, it's just as hectic for them, right? They were in the middle of it as well and going together to do that. That's why I think a team debrief, which is not always possible sometimes because everyone's pulled in a million directions, but that's kind of the best way to do it, I feel like, because everyone is going there. You're kind of making it not mandatory, but you're kind of, again, normalizing in a way like we're all having a meeting. You know, this is just something we have to do. And no one's like, oh, okay, I'm not being selfish with my time or whatever. They're just all coming together. And then people can share how they feel and take the time that they might need. I think that's the most helpful, but not always possible. But I think if it was just me, then I would just try to be transparent about, hey, I'm going to go out. I'm going to step out today. I'm going to want to come with me. Like, I'm just going to ambulance around. I'm just going to stand up there for a, sec- a few minutes, like, and just kind of decompress. I think that's the best thing I could do. As a junior person on the team, that's harder. You know, if your leaders are not showing that. I really don't know if I have an answer as to what they can do to to say other than to just, you know, it would take a lot of courage. I'm imagining myself many years back, med student Peggy or intern Peggy, I could wave my hand saying, I need some, I don't know if I could, if I could have done that, you know, that would be hard to be like, Hey, I, I need some time. And I always worry that I'd come off looking weak or something like that. And that's not what it should be. Right. That should be coming down from our leaders is modeling like real life emotion and real life response to stress. 
Yeah, I think med student Dan, <laughs> like not only would he have not been able to do that, he probably wouldn't have had the internal sensors tuned the right way to understand he would need to do that. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think I would really understand either. I'd be like, oh, okay, I guess everyone's moving on. Yeah. You know, one thing where I think that's different, one thing where I think we tend to get it really right is when we're in cardiac arrests and when people are doing CPR, because there's been, and I've seen it from both ends, from being the first like young person on the team to now leading the team. Although I, I will refuse to say being the old person on the team out of vanity, but you know, still being the young person who's now leading the team is that we, we do a good job of marking that moment and making it be a big moment and making it okay to be a big moment. Yeah. Right? We can take people away afterwards and say, Hey, that's the first time you just did CPR. Take a second. Like you need a minute to let that be. That's like mm-hmm. a life that happened mm-hmm. and a life that just crossed from somebody who's alive to somebody that isn't. And that that's that's real. That has gravity to it. And I think that that's incredibly necessary that we do that. That's so important. And it's such an interesting thing that we get that right and then typically don't do most of the rest of the stuff in the same way. Because I think you're right. I think that the culture change like really needs to come well, it needs to come from a lot of directions, but it needs to come from us. It needs to come from us doing what you said about, hey, let's normalize this and how it feels. And let's normalize making the wind down part of the moment. Peggy, how do, you, how do you think we can do that better this week? It's interesting what you said about, we're pretty good about winding down after cardiac arrest. I didn't think of it that way, but you're so right. You know, We are used to calling team debriefs, things like that in those situations. But how many other times on shifts are we not doing cardiac arrest where we're still doing crazy critical things and very traumatic things that happen to our patients, for example, and we just kind of move on? How can we be better about that? I don't know. I feel like it's kind of weird to say this, but I'm almost numb to that now. I just don't register it as being very intense or emergent or whatever. Just to me, I'm like, okay, this is just another traumatic, another really bad car accident patient or another, you know, and then just become normal to me. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't have an answer. I don't know. Part of that makes sense though, right? Like if we operated with the same emotional rawness and intensity that we had as first year medical students in our cases, we would not provide as good emergency care. That's true. There's a reason that we switch our responses to things. We evolve how we handle suffering and how we handle pain and how we handle trauma. But I still think there's space in there to do better And what you said about, hey, here's how I've set up coming home. Here's how I reset from a challenging moment. I guess my hypothesis is that that we shouldn't have to figure that out on our own without a structure to support us. Mm -hmm. And if you look across high-performing teams outside of the emergency department, when I bring other people on this podcast, they're not doing it that way. They're not. They have. They've already had it set up for them. Taught them how to do it. Do you think that the I'm going to use the Cowboys because I grew up in Dallas watching football, right? But do you think like the Dallas Cowboys at the end of a game, they turn to their players and they're like, all right, how do you want to recover? I don't know. Figure it out. We'll see you in a couple of days. <laughs> like, no, point. absolutely not. They're not yeah. doing that, right? They have teams of scientists and trainers and, and coaches and recovery technicians and everybody yeah. else being like, hey, let's microanalyze like, you know, how your left hamstring fired on this play and figure yeah. out how to, to like develop you into a better person for the next time you have to perform. 
right? Yeah. And I think about the conversation that we had a couple of episodes ago, actually a few episodes ago now with Kristen Holmes, who you know was the coach of USA field hockey for a long time and uh, the coach of Princeton field hockey for a long time. And what she describes about the packages they have in place to link preparation and recovery, to link what you're doing on your day off to what you can do for your day on, that is light years ahead of what we're doing in the ER. We're just having to figure it out on our own. Just like, yeah. Yeah. We don't have, yeah, we don't have anything like that, which so is really I'm important. A, I'm like obsessed with this question of how we could be doing this better. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're in a unique position because we actually like continually get to work with residents and teach people and sort of try to model some of this behavior. And I think if we both believe we can do it better and we don't know how, that's an interesting point that we got to go figure out. I guess that's a good natural segue to sort of another area that we talk about as we complete that sort of cycle of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, uh, which is evolution. And so digging into that for a second, how are you at this stage in your career, like continuing to grow and learn and improve yourself? I'm smiling because I'm thinking to myself, this is what I ask myself so often, (laughs) because I really do think during residency, one of the great things about residency I mean, there's a lot of great things about residency, but one really great thing is the education and the evolution is, it's already made for you. You know, you're PGY1, PGY2, this is your responsibility now. Now now you do this. And every time there's a regimented, there's people ahead of you that are, have gone through the same steps. So you know what's coming next. Now I feel like now I've graduated, it's very like free form. It's like, what do you want to do, Peggy? Like, how do I want to evolve? I don't have a great answer for you. For me personally, I've just been learning and changing kind of in the moment. And what I mean by that is just when I go on shift and I encounter something new that I haven't done before or asking a question that I've never asked myself before and I have to look for the answer. So it's all very real. Like, how do I learn is kind of what I ask myself. How do I learn to do this? Something that, you know, I don't have a lecture coming up tomorrow to tell me how to do this. How do I learn to do this procedure? Because I've never done it before, but I don't have Sim Lab next week to teach me this. So the answer is, I've just been figuring it out in the moment. I just, I've been asking a lot of colleagues. I, you know, ask people around me. I mean, after a shift, I start asking questions to people that I know that have experience. And and in the moment on a shift, I may, you know, have resources on like where I can look these answers up and things like that. So I've just been learning real time. I think it's also partially because when I'm not at work, I'm really trying to focus myself on not thinking about work. So a lot of my learning and evolution comes from in the moment being at work. And then I come home from work. I really just most of the time turn that off unless there's like something, you know, that really, that is burning, like a burning question in my mind or something like that. But yeah, that is uh, the whole evolution thing has changed for me now. It's very free form and I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. The maximizing your time when you're on and making mm-hmm. sure that you're learning as you go, I think is a really important skill set in there. So you mentioned that you'll you'll ask other people or you'll sort of look something up and like I guess what we would call like just in time learning about something. <laughs> yeah. What else do you do when you find yourself in a situation that surprises you? Maybe that's a good jumping off point. Like something happens mm-hmm. and it wasn't what you expected. What's your pattern? What's your set of tools that you turn to to try to to learn what to do better next time? So let's make it let's make it slightly more concrete. Yeah. What I'm driving towards here is that I think sometimes there's a difference in how we learn and evolve from a knowledge base, mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I need to understand more about the latest treatment for something or other. I understand yeah. how to look. And the tool is I go look that up and then I yeah. apply it back to this thing. But 
the the deeper sort of like meta learning pieces of what we do are a really different beast, right? So when you find yourself, hey, I, I just had this thought and I just went down this path and wow, it turns out I'm completely wrong. What did I miss? And I go back and I look at the signals and I try to understand where and how I was thinking. That really like requires a different set of tools. And I guess what I'm asking about is those tools. Like, what does that look like for you, whether it's on shift or off shift? Okay. So I'm thinking about a particular case where I'm, you know, responding to a patient and, you know, doing treatments or interventions and they're not ending up as I imagined or their condition changes unexpectedly. And in the moment, I kind of take it as I go. Oftentimes tell myself, okay, less is more. <laughs> and I, I slow down a lot of the times because I feel most of the time I'm adrenaline, adrenaline, go, 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 go. But when, especially when things are not going the direction, I'm always like, less is more, just watch to see what happens. And I always like to say to myself, they'll either get worse or they'll get better, or they'll stay the same. <laughs> There's three possibilities, but I have to see what happens. After the situation is fast, let's say I'm off of work and I think about that situation, I feel like I just keep playing a tape of it over and over again in my mind and thinking, okay, wait, but what if this happened? Like all the little other choices that I didn't make or that I I chose A, but what if I chose B and I run through that? How do I like go back to learn from it? I bounce it off of other people. I, I mean, for myself, it's too much to go around in my brain, kind of just guessing or having it run around like possibilities. When I talk to somebody about it, when I put it out there to someone that understands in the field, or maybe someone that isn't like in my specific field, but kind of understands what I'm talking about. Like, for example, my husband's in medicine, but he's not emergency medicine. Then I kind of have a sounding board, I feel like. Then I can kind of say like, okay, I realize I should have done this better. I should have done this. And then I get a little bit of feedback, you know, whether it's like, oh, I could do this better next time or, you know, I did the best I could. I feel like I rely a lot on other people, I think. I think if I was in a vacuum, I don't think I'd be able to do that. You know, I really, I really do rely on people a lot for that. That's really similar to what a colleague of ours, Dana Syed, said in one of the early episodes of the podcast. He does the same thing where he plays the case backward and forward and tries to sort of imagine different universes that are slightly different than ours, where, oh, maybe I picked yeah. something differently. What I think right. would happen. That's a really interesting parallel there. Have you always done that? Were you taught that? How did how did you start doing that? No, I think that's just my, I don't think I'm neurotic, but I think I have a little bit, I've, I think a lot of us have a little bit of that. And I think that just came out maybe a little bit of insecurity, maybe a little neuroticness, maybe we wanted to control things and then just like thinking about it, mulling it over. I don't necessarily know if it's a healthy thing though, because right, mm. like thinking about it over and over again, playing all the possibilities, like does that really, I mean, I guess to an extent, yes, it is good to be aware and to reflect on things. So that's part of reflection is going back to it, but to a certain extent, you know, I think if I was just by myself, it'd, it'd be un- endless, right? There's endless possibilities. My mind could go anywhere, but when I have someone else that kind of like can pause or stop or ask me questions, then I can think about it from a different point of view. And that's when I think it's the most helpful. There's certainly a difference between exploring the space of possibilities and perseverating needlessly on what happened. Yeah, exactly. Which is why to me, that's like, so now you have a situation where you have a tool and the tool being mental self-reflection with considering possibilities. And there are better and worse ways to use it, but we're not teaching it. We don't really know how to use it. And yet (laughs) we're all saying we do it. 
we need like a some kind of psychologist, psychiatrist to really get in to figure out what am I doing that I I don't even realize I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that like the joy and fascination of all this? I mean, that, that's what that's yeah. one of the things that keeps me so interested in the emergency mind yeah. project in general is that like everybody that I talk to, I'm like, yeah, I do that. I didn't really think of that as a thing. Why yeah. do I do that? I have no idea. Does anybody <laughs> teach me how to do that? I honestly don't know. <laughs> right? Like, but I do it and okay, you do great. it. I'm not the only one that doesn't does know. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, the more I dig into it, the more I'm like, ah, geez, that's sort of a weird black box that I operate like that. What does that mean if we're black boxes operating and teaching the next generation of people how to do things and not really shining that light, you know, sort of internally about that as much as we can? But I don't know, because there are times when it does lead itself to perseveration and, and sort of uh, needless wheel turning, right? Like I find that especially when it's a really challenging case that didn't go the way I wanted it to, right? If we split mm-hmm. performance and outcome where the outcome was bad, and I feel like maybe there was something I could have done better on my performance aspect. And sometimes it just feels like I'm just grinding, just like grinding over and over again on this thing, mm-hmm. trying to like find something, some space in it to do something differently. That's probably not healthy a lot of the time, right? Mm -hmm. But the difference between that and, yeah, I'm exploring a couple of different alternatives, not always a huge difference. That's true. It's a very fine line. Let's jump back just slightly. You said something in setting us up for this idea that you're sitting in front of a patient and they're not doing what you expect them to do. You're giving them some treatments and it's not really working. And the first thing you said in there is that you slow yourself down. How do you do that? How do you slow yourself down? I really don't have a physical way of doing it. It's not like I go, you know, to three deep breaths. I'm still learning, obviously, but just telling myself those words, I don't physically say it out loud, but I'm telling myself, okay, like slow down for a second. And then it just kind of gives me that pause. Even it's just a tiny pause that helps me. And I'll say it to other people too. Like there'll be nurses around or like my team, right? We're kind of all in the same boat. We're all trying to do one thing together. And then I'll, I'll say that like, okay, wait, I, well, let's think about this for a second or let's just stop and let, less is more. Let's just see what happens. You know, I'll say that, I'll say those things often, but yeah, that's just, I don't, that's how I kind of do it. It's, I don't think it's very perceptible from an outside person's point of view. Like if someone was just to fly on the wall and watching it, I don't think it would necessarily come off as like, oh, look, she's actually not talking anymore or just like sitting there thinking, like, I think it's all very internal, but like my mental thinking is like kind of like telling myself to pace myself in a way. I think externally it does. I've heard people tell me that it does come off as I'm very calm, which is kind of my goal. That is my goal. I do want to seem very calm. So that's a good thing that I keep trying to continue is that I try not to let it get to the external surface of me that you could see. (laughs) I love it. All right, Peggy, I want to wrap us up here. And I want to end by asking if you have any challenge that you want to issue to the folks listening to this, whether they're in medicine or not. And usually we phrase this as some version of like, what do you want them to do differently tomorrow after they've listened to this podcast? You know what? It kind of goes back to the what we were talking about earlier and you're asking me about what, what could junior people on a team do you know, for themselves? And I was thinking about you know, poor med student Peggy or intern Peggy. I really want to challenge people out there, no matter what level of training they are, because I feel like, even though technically I graduated residency, I still feel very new and junior in a way, you know, and I feel that we should try, you know, the next time we have to show up to whatever it is we're doing, just be selfish with your time and finding a way to advocate for yourself, I think is the most important thing. I'm still challenging myself to do that. I'm still learning, but I think 
Dan, something you and I can do that, that I'm learning from you today is that I need to model that in what I do as a leader. And hopefully that'll, you know, empower somebody else to kind of advocate for themselves when they need that too. Awesome. <laughs> Peggy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. It's such a joy to get to dig in with you like this. I'm really excited for what we do uh, next time we have a shift together. Cause I, I think I have some ideas and some cool experiments we can run. Yeah, that would be really cool. I really want to thank you for having me, Dan, because I really, when you asked me to do this, I was really thinking to myself, why would Dan ask me to do this? Me? Are you asking the right person? Definitely, <laughs> <And> definitely I, <laughs> am. And so I'm really honored and happy to be a part of your project and your journey and podcast. And thank you so much for having me. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right. Good luck out there.